If you will please join me in standing for the reading of today's New Testament lesson from the book of Luke, chapter 22, verses 39 through 46. And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down, and he began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down on the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you do not enter into temptation. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Adam, for reading our lesson this morning. And it is good to be with each of you and sharing these moments together. We're grateful to all of our worship leaders, uh, our musicians, our liturgists. And Allison, thank you for that children's sermon uh, that reminds us that Thursday evening we will be welcoming the Lord into our home through virtual communion, and we look forward to that experience together as well. I want to talk to you for a few minutes on the theme of praying through a crisis. I've heard it said before that every battle is won or lost before it's ever fought. I think that's true. The saying, of course, is attributed to Sun Tzu, the ancient Chinese general and military strategist. He is believed to have written this saying in an ancient text called The Art of War. This treatise contains policies, technique, strategy for fighting battles. And the thesis of his treatise is every battle is won or lost before it's ever fought. Last fall, several of us from Brentwood had the privilege of visiting Normandy in France, the scene of a great battlefield there, the great battle which was called Operation Overlord. We know it as D-Day, happened on June the 6th, 1944. That particular battle was months, even years, in the making and would lead to the liberation of France and Western Europe. We know that 12,000 Allied troops were killed, 4,900 Americans. It was an operation that was so risky that General Eisenhower, the Supreme Commander, wrote a letter accepting full blame in case the battle did not succeed. Thankfully, that letter never had to be sent. And there are those who say the battle was won before it was ever fought because the cause was just. I don't know about you, but I think we could make the case that the spiritual battle that happened on Good Friday at Golgotha was actually won the night before at Gethsemane. 
We've celebrated Palm Sunday today. What, what began on Palm Sunday with a coronation looked like the crowning of a king by week's end becomes a funeral procession. Some folks in the crowd, the same crowd who shouted Hosanna on Sunday, cried crucify him on Friday. Now we know, of course, that Jesus was not surprised by this sudden turn of events. He predicted it, in fact, three times, says Luke. But you know as well as I do that just knowing a crisis is coming doesn't necessarily lessen the grief of enduring it. By Thursday of Holy Week, everything was going south. Jesus had cleansed the temple on Monday, and by that time and following, it was clear that his days were numbered. Jesus would teach in the temple by day and retire to a place called the Mount of Olives at night. Many of you have been to the Mount of Olives. We were there last February, last year. We sat in that place on the east side of Jerusalem, just across the Kidron Valley, where Jesus and friends often went. It was a special place called Gethsemane. The word literally means olive press. It's full of olive trees. John says it was a garden. Luke just calls it the place. And after Jesus served the Seder, the Last Supper, verse 40, Luke 22 says, they went to the place as was their custom. It was a place of refuge. It was a place of meditation. It was a place of prayer. In fact, there's a church built on that very site today called the Church of All Nations. It's also called the Church of Agony. And that church marks the very spot where Jesus prayed on the night before he died. In Luke's gospel, more than the others, of course, prayer is the keynote of the gospel. Jesus is always praying before his baptism, praying, before choosing the 12, praying, before Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi, he's praying. At the Mount of Transfiguration, it's the same. Even on the cross, in his dying moment, Jesus is praying. In fact, he's interceding for the very ones that strung him up. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Prayer is the only thing that Jesus' disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them. They didn't say, teach us to preach, teach us to heal. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. And here on the night before his greatest battle, Jesus instinctively does what he's always done. He prays. And he encourages his friends to do the same. Notice Jesus doesn't ask his friends to pray for him, but to pray for themselves. I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but it is not a selfish thing to pray for yourself. Of course, interceding for others, as Allison has done for us this morning, intercession for others is critically important, but personal petition is also necessary. The brother of Jesus knew it. He says in James chapter 4, verse 2, you have not because you ask not. Jesus taught in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, verse 7, ask and it will be given, seek, and you shall find, knock, and the door 
shall be opened to you. And so it's not a selfish thing to pray for yourself. I've always loved the story of the little boy who was praying before bedtime. He prayed for his mother, his dad, his sister, his brother, his grandparents, and himself. And finally, he finished his prayer by saying, and Jesus, while you're at it, take care of yourself too, because if something happens to you, we're all in trouble. I've had some of you recently Ask me during this pandemic, is it unusual that we really don't know how to pray? I know the feeling. I understand that. I felt that. I don't always know how to pray either. Paul had times like that. We know that. There were times in Paul's life where the burden was so heavy, the struggle was so unbearable, that all he could do was just groan. Mm. In fact, he writes to the Romans in chapter 8, verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. When we don't know what we ought to pray for, the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the Father's will. Most of you know that in our prayer garden that's just outside the sanctuary, there's an effigy, there's a sculpture of Jesus in this very scene, praying at Gethsemane at the olive press. I noticed the other day that if you get very close to the face of Jesus, you will notice on both sides of his cheeks, there are tears. Luke says that Jesus was in anguish that night. The Greek term is agonia, which you recognize translates into agony. He's in a battle. Prayer is a battle. Sometimes when I struggle to pray, and that's often, I go to the book of Psalms, particularly to the lament Psalms, because it's a comfort to recite the prayers of anguish of the saints who have come before us who can say for us what we struggle to speak ourselves. But I've got some good news for you on this Palm Sunday. Jesus is good in a crisis. Jesus teaches us how to pray in a crisis. In fact, twice in this text, Jesus turns to his disciples and and says, pray that you won't give in to temptation. Another translation says, pray that you won't succumb to evil in the time of crisis. Now, this reminds me of the prayer that we've already prayed and that the youth choir sang, where Jesus said, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In other words, what he's saying is, don't let us yield to any lesser pursuit than the Father's will. Jesus teaches his disciples in a crisis how to pray. But notice in this case what the disciples do. What do they do? They fall asleep. The word for sleep in the ancient language means to be inattentive. It means to be distracted or to be unaware. That's interesting, in Luke's version of this particular detail, unlike Mark, Luke gives the disciples an excuse. 
an out, a mulligan. He says that the disciples went to sleep because they were weighed down with grief. I don't have to tell you, you know, if you've been through the death of a loved one or through some painful transition, that grief is the most exhausting emotion in the world. And these disciples were just worn out from grief. They, like Jesus, knew what was coming, but they didn't want to know. You ever been there? When our children were small, they would come to the table at night and I'd say to them, what happened at school today? And they'd say, Dad, you don't want to know. And they were usually right. Our children who are now adults still sometimes call me and begin the conversation with three words, don't tell mom. I say why and they say what she doesn't know won't hurt her. And I usually say that's true, but if she hears it from someone else, she may hurt you. And if I'm an accessory to the crime, I'm done for as well. The disciples know what's coming, but they don't want to know. They're weighed down with grief. So much so that they've become inattentive to the need of their own rabbi. They're asleep. I don't know who said it, but I agree. Prayerlessness leads to carelessness. And so it is. Someone was saying to me the other day, I'm so weary at night lately. And it's not because I'm working 24-7. I can't go to the office. But I tell you, after all the Skyping, after all the Zooming, after all the texting and calling, the emailing, the press conferences and the news, The concern over the economy, the mitigation, the social distancing at night when my head hits the pillow, I'm just worn out. In fact, sometimes I just would like to go to sleep and wake up tomorrow and it's all over. In this critical scene in Gethsemane, Jesus models for us how to pray in a crisis. He goes to his place, gets on his knees, and cries out to God. Did you notice how he addresses God? It's not in a formal way. It's a very affectionate way. It's a personal way. Abba, he says, which in the Aramaic means dad. Abba, dad, If you're willing, take this cup from me. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't say, if you're able. He says, if you're willing. It's not a matter of ability. It's a matter of will, willingness. And what does it mean where he says, take this cup? What's the cup? What is it with the cup? The cup is a metaphor for death. It's a metaphor for crisis for suffering, for sacrifice. If you are willing, Abba, let this cup pass. Jesus doesn't have a death wish. He doesn't want to die. He wants to live. And what he's asking his father is, if there's any other way to accomplish your purpose, let's do it another way. But then at the end of the prayer, Jesus says, nevertheless... 
And that's a game changer. That separates the men from the boys. That separates the women from the girls, the deep from the shallow. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It's not a bargain prayer. He's not saying, Lord, if you'll get me out of this, I'll go to seminary. I'll be a missionary in Africa. He's not saying that. He's saying, nevertheless, even if it means a cross, even if it costs my own life, I am in. Praise Jesus. And then Luke adds this little detail. You don't see it in the other synoptic gospels. Verse 43, then an angel from heaven appeared to Jesus from heaven and gave him strength. I love that. Gave him strength. Strength to do what? To run away? To retreat? No. The angel gave Jesus strength to drink the cup of suffering. Nevertheless, I read the other day about James Goodrich, neurosurgeon, who was known for separating conjoined twins. He did it several times. He's a brilliant man of great humility and great skill. He died from the coronavirus. He was 73 years of age, and he should have been at home watching the news or playing golf, but he was walking the corridors of his hospital. Nevertheless, I've discovered that crisis often reveals character. It also inspires innovation, spiritually and scientifically. I believe that this is the art of God. I have discovered in my own life that when there is limitation, prayer enables innovation even in the face of lamentation. It's what my grandparents used to call praying through. Oswald Chambers said it like this, we must learn to pray with our eyes on God and not just on our difficulties. And what we see in this crisis at Gethsemane and later at Golgotha is it turns out that prayer is not preparation for the battle. Prayer is the battle. And the battle can be won before it's ever fought. One other word and I'm finished. I've mentioned this book before. It's a book that I've read at least three times. Uh, when I find a great book, I'll read it more than once. I think I've read Falling Forward by Richard Rohr uh, five times, Celebration of Discipline six times at different points in my life. I've read this book several times, A Great Disguise. The subtitle is How the Soul Grows Through Loss. It's written by a man that I've come to know named Jerry Sitzer. He's a teacher at Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington. Some of you know this story. In the summer of 1991, while he and family were on vacation in Utah, Jerry's van was hit head-on by a drunk driver. 
This man lost three generations of his family in that car crash. He lost his mother, his wife, his youngest daughter. In the book, he describes with deep honesty what it's like to be a single parent, to be a teacher, to be a counselor to others, while at the same time being weighed down with his own grief. At one point, he says in the book that his pain was so deep that it was like slipping into a black hole of oblivion. He said, I just wanted out of the anguish. I wanted out of the agony. And then one night, he writes, I had a kind of a waking dream. The sun was setting, and I was frantically chasing after it, running west, hoping to catch it and bring it back, but I was losing the race. Soon the sun was gone, and I felt the vast darkness closing in, and I shared the dream with my sister, Diane. She said to me, Jerry, the quickest way to reach the sun as it's setting is not to go west, but to head east, to move fully into the darkness until you come to the sunrise. He said it was a completely counterintuitive insight that helped me in my brokenness to find my faith. I discovered in that moment, he said, that I had the power to choose the direction my life would head. And I decided from that moment on to walk in the darkness rather than to try to outrun it, to let my experience of loss take me on a journey wherever God would lead and allow myself to be transformed by my suffering rather than to think I could somehow avoid it. Jerry Sitzer drank the cup. And his testimony reminds us today of a place that we're all sure to pass through. It's called Gethsemane. It's a place of surrender. It's a place of submission where in the shadow of a cross, you discover in no uncertain terms that you are not alone and you are strengthened to say, nevertheless, must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No. There's a cross for everyone, and there's a cross for me. You can win the battle before it's ever fought when you say, nevertheless. In Jesus' name, amen.